0: Brilliant people rarely appear out of thin air with no tendrils of past experience. We are looking for the kinds of entrepreneurs that have left tailwinds behind them of a slew of happy people who have been inspired by their brilliance, their ingenuity, their creativity.
1: Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Mariana Senko, an early-stage venture capitalist at Future Ventures, the firm she co-founded with Steve Jurvetson. She has an interest in robotics and quantum computing, blockchain, aerospace, and the future of food. She was previously at Coastal Ventures, as well as DFJ, where she worked with Steve to focus on frontier technology investments. Let's dive in. Mariana, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yes, I appreciate you taking the time. A lot to discuss with Future Ventures and your path. And I mean, so many things that you see with companies as well. Doing research was in some ways overwhelming, in some ways exciting in a different way, because there's so much that you could talk about with the companies you're involved with and have been involved with and what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis. But first off, I know in your background, there's obviously a lot more happening in the world uh, outside of just investing in startups. Uh, any commentary, anything you'd like to bring up on the Ukraine situation with your background giving context.
0: Oh, I, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, for anybody who uh, doesn't know me, I'm originally from Western Ukraine, and so it's been a pretty harrowing couple of months for myself, my extended family, and uh, just everybody there. And I I think if there was ever a calling for the globe, uh, kind of for us as humans on this earth to, to get off of our... Um, adherence and obsession with petrol states, uh, this would be the time. I think we can see the the just horrifying damages of what happens when corrupt governments wield unreasonable power over the rest of us based on uh, energy economies. And I think we should all think very clearly about what kind of atrocities we enable by the broader choices we make.
1: There's a lot that could be discussed with that obviously with, given the entire environment and everything but i think one of the themes that comes to already anyways that you've worked on a lot of i guess impactful things just in terms of mm-hmm. the companies you're working with and the companies you choose as well one thing i'm curious about right away to start with with future ventures you're on fund too i think as of now that's great working with steve any time looking at like starting a company or a venture fund like this long-term partnership this fuels so much of what you're going to be doing day to day, where the direction is. Just take me through deciding to work with him on future ventures, how you two work together, because I think that's going to lead a lot of questions I have after that too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, Steve Jurvetson and I have had the pleasure of knowing each other for quite a number of years now. We work together back at DFJ and we had such a such a wonderful working relationship Um then that was just this very natural partnership. What Steve determined is that he has always worked well in kind of a dynamic duo, taking any potentially interest interesting investment for himself and and really running it through the mental rigor of looking at it in the context of partnership and having kind of two people claw at these ideas. And he and I had a really natural cadence around that. And so then a, a couple of years after uh, DFJ, we we were out for a walk, uh, and ha- we're just discussing what does it look like to do early stage venture capital in a, you know, is there a novel way to do it? There's not like there's any any semblance of uh, a, you know, limit limited number of venture funds. There's endless venture funds out there, so why would the world need another one? And we thought, well. We're not sure it does, but perhaps the kinds of companies we want to fund aren't adequately supported, Uh, and that's to say early stage deep tech, uh, you know, these kind of high risk, high opportunity endeavors that really shift the trajectory of of humanity on this planet, uh, ideally for the better. And that's that's really what we realized is that we both care fundamentally about those companies. And we want to spend 100% of our time on those companies, not 5% of our time or 20% of time. We don't want it to be a something, you know, hangnail on the back of our enterprise software fund. We wanted all of our t- time to be devoted to that. And what we realized is that we... Between having a good natural relationship, a, a cadence, a capacity to really bat ideas back and forth between the two of us, and a desire to see the same kinds of companies come into being, that was a really strong basis for the partnership. And so that's the footing on which we founded Future Ventures. And uh, I would say that our partnership's only gotten stronger from there.
1: I wanted to bring that up because whether you're a founder or an investor, It's the same type of thing. You're trying to deal with these people problems constantly and who you're going to work with. And so I think it's always helpful to have context, especially when it is a small team. Uh, To that point, the two of you on the investment side, you know, you have help in operations. But how have you managed to streamline things so you can see the best companies with only two investors? I'm just really curious about that side of things with Future Ventures too.
0: Yeah, it's probably the most common question that makes people scratch their heads when they look at us because we we've raised two 200 million dollar main funds to date uh and we have um just about 36 investments across those two funds uh we're actually I think we're we're at 37 now which is great thanks to cl- one closing last week yeah. and uh <laughs> you know, that seems like a lot for two people. We don't have any analysts or principals or or junior associates on staff. And so we have to be ruthlessly efficient with our time. And so one of the, the keys in our partnership is that we only surface things to each other once one or the other of us has a real defined interest. So there's very little of this, oh, I saw this, it's kind of interesting. Like if you don't have conviction, you don't waste your partner's time with it. Now, the flip side is you can say, I just don't know that much about the space, but I happen to know that Steve's an expert in this. And so occasionally, if the team is particularly credible, I'll flag something to Steve and say, I just don't have a good intuition in the space. If this piques your interest, you know, please go ahead and dig in. And so I think the the tricks for us, are um, our modes of operation are about being really careful, considerate of our time and of each other's time.
1: One of the things I heard you talk about in a, a podcast, you're talking about, obviously with the other, with inherently being deep tech, the amount of money that goes into making these products come to life is can be a lot, tens and tens of millions of dollars. How can founders de-risk the customer side of things? And you talked a little bit about this in a different show, but I'm curious from, from the founder perspective, like how do you advise them to, or what can they do potentially to help de-risk the customer side of things so they don't have to necessarily spend tens of millions before they even know if this is viable. I'm just curious how you think about that.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the challenges when you think about any early stage company, right, is the, how much, how much money is required to build the thing and then how much money is required to get it in the hands of people who might want to use it or care about it. Now, when you fund deep tech things where the engineering can require tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. You really shouldn't be taking on any risk on the customer side, like full stop. Yeah. Um, that means that one of the things that you can do is ensure that your final product is coming to market at a you know a a form and a price factor that the market globally agrees is going to be viable. So, for example, with Commonwealth Fusion Systems, their levelized cost of electricity, so their, their final cost of electricity is going to come in well below the cost of renewables plus energy storage. And everyone agrees today that the renewable market is huge. It would be even bigger if the cost of storage came down. So if you can certainly come to market with electricity that's below that cost, then you're not worried about whether or not people want to buy electricity at that cost. Now, if you're making a product that doesn't look like that, doesn't look like the cost of electricity, but looks like something like a you know, a motor that uh, an aerospace company would want to buy, then you essentially have to have certainty from your buyer that they will buy that product at the price point that you claim you can build it at. And this is where you end up in a bit of a tug and a poll debate, right? So we've seen this with all of the major 3D print uh, companies where, they basically said, we need a bunch of money to build these 3D printers, but once we build them, like, boy, will people want them. And then essentially everyone argues about whether or not they actually want the printers and at what cost and what can the printer do and at what cost. And so I, I think that there's never a a simple answer to this so much as it always ends up being a, a push and pull and and specifically we tend to avoid the kinds of businesses where, where there's a lot of hemming and hawing. Now on the flip side, there there are certain markets that are uncertain, but to us feel like such a natural and necessary evolution. So for example, we recently invested in a male contraception, uh, a non-hormonal male contraception pill. Now there isn't a market for this today. Now you can point at the market of condoms, maybe, and you can point at the market of a couple of other things that men pay for without, you know, out of with out of pocket um, money as opposed to medical reimbursement. Uh, and. And you could potentially draw a circle around the potential market size, but what you really think about in a situation like that and, you know, in, in the face of today's uh, political <laughs> climate in the U.S., you say, this is just a direction that the world needs to address, and so we trust that if this product is safe and it gets the regulation and FDA approval, then the market naturally has to be there because we believe that this is a future of the world. Now, there's not a lot of spaces that you're willing to gain that kind of conviction in unless you feel really deeply in a space.
1: With the different areas you invest in, so deep tech, I guess for people who aren't as familiar, if you go through like what your thesis is specifically within deep tech, it might be helpful as well.
0: Yeah, so we, our thesis is um, unimaginably broad, uh, <laughs> which is delightful because it means that essentially anything that makes the world a better place is in scope for us. It also means that people aren't quite certain what to call us about. Um, what we say is that If you're building something novel, something unlike anything the world has ever seen before, and something that is based on a deep technology basis, which is to say that somebody can't just repeat it, that it is on the basis of some profound scientific breakthrough or engineering capacity that you uniquely hold, that is very interesting to us. The cross-section that we care about is it needs to be better for the planet and for the people living on it, because honestly, what else are we doing with our time if we're not doing those things? And so that means that we funded everything from nuclear fusion to neural implants to now a male contraception. Um, What that looks like in practice is not this random pogo stick hopping through idea space, but actually a pretty consistent and targeted progression through ideas, state spaces, themes, technologies that are meaningful to us that we have some level of capacity of understanding in and that we've actively kind of done and done the landscape research. And so for example, women's reproductive longevity and broadly reproductive longevity became a deeply interesting space to me two years ago and out of, the better part of two years of work, we ended up with two, two investments in the space, one in women's reproductive longevity and one in male contraception.
1: With that too, how do you, to that point of the thesis and having kind of a lot of different broad, as you mentioned, how are you then educating yourself, figuring out this, like company comes to you, you already have a thesis on different things you've looked at, or like an understanding, obviously from your research, from years of doing this already and your, your career so far, what does that process look like then are you when do you bring in experts that have this domain expertise in something that might be helpful versus like your analysis of it then like you two talking to each other you and Steve talking to each other like take me through that process and kind of what that look, what that looks like when a company comes in
0: yeah i mean one of one of the great delights in my life is working with Steve who is an unbelievable polymath and so it seems that there isn't a topic that i can bring up to him that he doesn't have deep technical expertise in to an honestly frightening level um and and i think that's kind of how it goes between the two of us which is between our technical backgrounds we we generally don't tread too deeply into waters where we aren't reasonably familiar with the kind of high level abstraction like first principle physics what are what are the access points on which this is made or broken now occasionally we stumble into spaces where we really don't know what's going on uh and Then one of two things happens, which is essentially we say, it's too early. This is an interesting space, but we're not informed enough. We don't have enough of a prepared mind to make a decision. Now, if we have the time to go and gain a prepared mind, we will do so. And so, for example, we're looking at some novel steelmaking technologies right now. I have a background in material science. I took a number of classes more than a decade ago in steelmaking, but you know, whether or not I remember how various molybdenum vacancy infusions into the carbide process affect the properties of the steel and the temperatures at which they work at, like, no, I I barely, you know, I remember that those equations exist. I don't actually remember what they look like. Um, And... Understanding, you know, so so as we've been looking at these steelmaking companies, I got on the phone with a bunch of my former professors from Carnegie Mellon, and said, uh, "Here's what I, here's what sadly little I remember of your wonderful graduate course, dear professor. I really appreciate the time. I'm sorry it didn't stick with me." Um, and you know, and have at first a high level conversation, and and then basically determine whether or not given what we're exploring and the, the things they point out to us to say, hey, you know, these are three points that you should really gain a little bit more confidence on. Uh, we, we occasionally employ experts, um, but less so than I think people would realize. At, th- at the end of the day, for early stage startups, you can do most of the reasonability, feasibility assessment on a first principle basis. Yeah. Um, and that's what we aim to do. And we also go on the credibility of the teams that are involved.
1: Tell me that. going dive a little bit deeper into the credibility of the teams. Like how do you evaluate that? I know you mentioned in our show, you're looking for someone who is uniquely positioned to solve this problem. Tell me through what that looks like. An example of that maybe.
0: Yeah. It, it, look, brilliant, brilliant people rarely appear out of thin air with no tendrils of past experience. Um, and, and I think that's something we realize, which is we we are looking for the kinds of entrepreneurs that have left tailwinds behind them of a slew of happy people who have been inspired by their brilliance, their ingenuity, their creativity. And so going back to, you know, what kind of students were they to how were they in their first jobs, to what kind of problem solving have they approached? like we we try to figure out, who are the actual people and how do they think about problems and not just problems in, in the technical sense of, you know, how do they approach the physics potentially in a novel manner, but then how do they also approach dealing with people? Because at the end of the day, they still, you know, they, they need to be brilliant and mad scientists, but also capable managers and executives. And so for that, we, we really look holistically at the teams. And so one of the things that's always a, a key marker for us is, um, at the early stages of a company, who have they convinced to come and join them in their ranks? Whether as you know, Im- immediate full time employees are the strongest sign. Uh, immediately following that is is advisors and those people's backgrounds. And then I think one below that is maybe angel investors.
1: Yeah, because ultimately you have to get people on board if you're going to build the company to get to the next level, whether it be fundraising as well as building the team around it, which these are very long term uh, horizons on these companies as well. And to that point, with the LPs you have in these funds, so people who aren't familiar, two two hundred million dollar funds, fifteen year time horizon on these, take me through the LP side of it, getting the right LPs on board, understanding how you wanted to deploy these. I think you've done two year maybe every two years you wanna go with this. Take me through more of that side of things as well.
0: That's right. And so we're we'll we'll be doing it again this this fall. So that'll it'll be interesting to see how round three goes, but we've been exceptionally <laughs> yeah. fortunate with, with our LP basis. So, we, we really, when we started the fund, we reached out to not the kind of nameless, faceless institutions that people think about sometimes when they think about who, who backs venture funds. Um, There's nothing wrong with those institutions. But what we really wanted was individuals, people who understood us, who understood what we were trying to do, and who actually saw the struggle that entrepreneurs have to go to. Because the real point that we're making with the 15-year fund is, let's be honest, it's always a 15-year fund. It's all, you know, for the best companies in your portfolio, it's a 10-year fund, and then you extend for the ones that are working. Yeah. Um, and it's such a shame in the out years to be trying to pull out of your position, especially in the winners that are doing the best for you. And the people who most recognize that and most understand that are the people who have built those companies. And so we went out and spoke to the, L- the, the L- RLPs now are, are basically tech entrepreneurs and former tech entrepreneurs who understand the not just the framework of venture capital, but the long arc of technical company building. And we've we've been really lucky in that sense in that RLPs have really come in support, not just of our funds, but also of our portfolio companies, both with participating actively in follow-on funding in those companies, and then also in uh, occasionally... Uh, larger like really much larger funding rounds for for companies like spacex and and Commonwealth fusion as as they come into subsequent growth rounds um, our Lps have just shown uh, an exceptional form of tenor and support for those companies that we've been really delighted by so we have a lot of LPS almost a hundred uh, <laughs> which is more than than most but the the flip side is we have a spectacular relationship with them and we don't feel the burden of LP management because again, these aren't the institutions that you think about that send you endless amounts of paperwork. These are real people whose first and last names we know and whose cell phones we have.
1: To that point, how did you decide on like deployment period being roughly two years or like a number of companies you wanted to invest in, those types of things within this industry with what you wanted to do? Because I mean, just for context, like at Vitalize, we're messing in seed stage companies and software companies. Based on fund size, obviously it dictates different things. I'm just curious on how you got to 200 million number of companies, two years. Like, I'm curious about those details.
0: Yeah, I I think there's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of rounding error at play here, right? Mm-hmm. Which is sometimes the the numerology of certain things sound like just kind of naturally work themselves out. And so one of the things that we think about is how many portfolio companies could we reasonably keep tabs on. While doing a good job supporting them and concurrently looking, continuing to look for novel investments. And so we found that uh, about 20 companies per fund, so 20 companies per $200 million fund, nets out to a pretty good mix of seed and Series A as the initial investment point, and then really being able to follow on in a meaningful way in subsequent rounds in a way that we can still remember the names of all the founders, <laughs> keep tabs on them. I I've I've been around funds that you know have on the order of like 300 active portfolio companies and it it's just really hard to keep it straight. It's not that you don't love them as much. There's just a lot of them and it's hard to figure out you know what's going on and I, I I think it's a bit of a stylistic choice for us is that we are a little bit higher touch and so we opted optimized more for a fund size for for a portfolio size that makes sense relative to our fund size i think if we had added more people to the team we would have raised a larger fund and ended up with more portfolio companies um your other question in terms of investing period i think that's kind of just been a, a an emergent property where our investment period per fund has been two to three years uh I think, as everyone experienced in 2021, it was a bit of an accelerated investment <laughs> period, and and we've seen 2022, cal- you know, kind of calm calm those waters a bit, um, and so we we expect going forward this kind of like natural pacing of this this two to three year cycle, which is what Steve has seen throughout his, the entirety of his career, and and what I have as well, and so I think that one's a little bit more of an emergent property. Um, I suppose we could write smaller checks further apart, but at, at the end of the day, you know, every once in a while you just see the most spectacular series A company and you want to lean into leading.
1: Of course, of course. And seeing your website and looking at their portfolio, it's like, if you you obviously call future ventures, but if you literally want to see the future of these types of investments, like look at each company, I'm like, holy shit. Like what? Like every way, the crazy things that they're doing, it's kind of wild. So I'm curious from your perspective, like what problems are you most excited about that your teams are, are, are trying to overcome. Like, I'm just curious on your own personal, like what you're excited about. I'm, you know you love all your companies, I'm sure, but are there problems or areas that you're most excited about.
0: Oh, you're so exceptionally kind. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's hard to pick cause they're all so interesting. I mean, I, I think some of the ones that I'm most excited about are the ones that people, don't realize are feasible or, are, or are kind of, you know, coming to the rescue. Um, so for, for example, you know, everyone has discounted fusion for the last 30 years for obvious and good reasons. And, and just to, to kind of peek over the edge of the capacity of what, what card, what technological card humanity may play next. Uh, it's a real exciting space to say, oh, fusion might fusion might be next. Um, <laughs> I think one of the ones that I'm just deeply excited about is um, the the kind of future of of food broadly, um both in the nutrition of how we eat. So a company like Fife uh, Therapeutics, which is looking at nutrition as a form of cancer care. And so right now it's actually a a, a form of therapeutic treatment of cancers. Um, So uh, basically selecting selectively starving your cancers of certain foods that are inadvertently helping them grow. But in the future, you could you could prognosticate this out to how this then becomes actually a form of diet that we all blow you know take into our lives for example if you have a family history of a particular type of cancer well you might want to cut out certain food groups that inadvertently grow those cancer cells uh, asynchronously more quickly than your normal healthy cells right and you like might be willing to give up avocados or something for that um, and so I, I just think that kind of an idea, maybe not avocados, that <laughs> but uh, I think that kind of an idea of, of looking at the future of our health and our capacities, not, not simply from a prevent from a, from a kind of, you know, mopping up the current disaster of, you know, whether it be health or energy crisis, but to say, what can we do in the future from a maintenance perspective is a concept that i'm really excited about and so yeah everything you know we have we have a company that's focusing on bolstering the immune systems of bees um and you know global hive colony collapse turns out is something that's a huge issue and is going to cause global famine if we don't start addressing it and so the idea that we might actually have a series of technologies that help our bees function to help our fruits grow is something that's deeply exciting to me.
1: Okay. With this, with hearing these different things, do you keep this, I know we're almost out of time, but do you keep this in like a map of things you believe in the world? Do you have like a notion doc? Like, I'm just curious how you organize this.
0: It, you should ask my fiance because he, <laughs> he's kind of constantly laughing at me going, what is going on in that head? Um, I essentially have, uh, I, I start every year with, uh, a reflection on what did we focus on last year, either because we focused on it actively or because it was an emergent property of our interests. And, you know, what, what do I think is maybe not, I don't, I don't think our, our portfolio holistically solves any one problem on earth completely but we have some good efforts to address it and so i'm i'm playing the game of how do we spread wide and so within that i start every subsequent year with saying what did we look at last year and what do i want to learn more about this year and so for example i started this year saying i don't know enough about water water the healthy drinking water, ocean science, just water as a whole. And then it just so happened that the MIT Tech Review magazine of January and February of this year was all on water. And the two were like <laughs> completely independent, but I took it as a sign that okay, this is this is the year that I focus on water. Now we don't have any water investments yet, but it it's an it's an, and we might not, but it becomes an area of interest where you just start reading about it and thinking about it on top of everything else that you pick up as an interest
1: that reminds me of i don't know if you've talked to the people at burnt island ventures but they're focusing on water yeah yeah yeah. so that's yeah exactly (laughs) so there's yeah yeah, there's so many issues and things to solve um we could obviously talk for a very long time we're almost out of time so where's the best place for people to learn more about future ventures and connect with you as well if they'd like to
0: our best uh our best place is just our website which is future.ventures um You can also find myself and Steve rather actively on Facebook, Steve in particular, uh, or just shoot me an email to Mariana at future.ventures, and I look forward to hearing from you.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. It was such a delight.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to Vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at VitalizeVC, or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day and I'll talk to you in the next episode.